This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, guys. My name is Jeff Heiser. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. It's so good to be worshiping with you today and studying God's Word uh, with you as well. Um, Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. We're in the sermon series on the book of Acts this fall. And while you're turning there, um, if there's one thing that is absolutely central to the definition of what it means to be a Christian, and yet something that we as Christians are so bad at in practice, I would say that it's probably the discipline of prayer. Um, you know, maybe we struggle to tithe. Evangelism feels a little cringy in our culture, maybe, but, but prayer for some reason seems to have this special place of difficulty in our lives. I don't know about you, but I, for whatever, well, for a host of reasons, I had a pretty anxious week. And um, anxiety, you know, there are multiple reasons for them, but maybe one of the biggest reasons that we're anxious is because our prayer lives are weak and we don't really turn to God and give Him our troubles, and we don't really believe maybe that He can work. So this is something that as I've been preparing this sermon on prayer, and I've been reflecting on my own life or even my life this week, these, are wor- are, there are, these words about prayer, these are things that I struggle with, these th- things that like, we all need to grow in. I don't know if I know anyone my age who's like, man, I have a really good prayer life. This is something that we struggle with. So, and, and, but, but how do we get to this place? How do we get to this place that Christians are bad at praying? It's, it's almost oxymoronic. It's, it's crazy. Well, as I've been reflecting, I think there's a host of reasons, but um, a couple of them that kind of came to mind for me this week is one is that we're just too busy. Um, you know, we, we spend our mornings flipping through social media um, and, or emails, or, or maybe we're trying to make up for sleep that we missed because the night before we were checking social media and emails instead of sleeping, right? I mean, we, we, are, we fill our lives with distractions and entertainment, and it sucks up all the time that we could be spending in prayer. Um, maybe another reason that we don't pray is that we don't need God because we've already bought everything that we need. You know, the, the, the pastor, Paul Miller, he says, um, he says that money can do what prayer does, and it's quicker and less time-consuming. That's to say, like, we don't really need Jesus because we can provide for ourselves, and guess what? It's a whole lot more efficient to do it that way, right? We don't, we don't pray because we don't have the sense that we need God. Well, you know, the thing about prayer is that it actually um, gives us a window into our hearts, and the quality of our prayer, their lack thereof, it can show us who we functionally believe God to be and who we, like how we believe that he interacts with our lives. Now, the book of Acts is the story of the early church. It's kind of like the, the founding stories, right, of, of the church. And, and last week, Ronnie preached from Acts chapter 3. And, and, and in that chapter, the apostles, they heal miraculously this man who's lame. And immediately after, they begin preaching the gospel to kind of the crowds that are gathered to, in, in shock and awe of what's going on. And um, in the Pharisees and Sadducees, like the religious leaders, they, they, they come and they're a little bit peeved. In fact, if you were to turn to the cha- beginning of chapter 4, it says that they were annoyed by the apostles. They were annoyed by what they were doing. And so they have them arrested. And um, 
that's, and that's, this is all the beginning of chapter, chapter 4, right? And this, this is the first real instance of like Christian persecution. Like they're arrested for their faith, right? These are, you see what's going on there? But, the, but, but the, they, they can't really figure out what to charge them with, so they end up letting them go. Um, nothing really comes from it. Um, but they do warn them and they say, listen, you, you need to stop what you're doing. Stop what you're saying. You, this has got to stop or otherwise there will be consequences in the future. As, if we, as we, you know, when we continue in the book of Acts, we learn that there are real consequences for what they do. But as soon as Peter and John, right, the two apostles that were arrested, as soon as they're let, they let go, they go back to the church. And that's where our passage starts today. And the first thing that they do is they pray. Um, and what we find in their prayer, following this instance of pers- this persecution, right? What we find in their prayer is who they believed God to be and how they believed that he interacted with their lives, right? And that's what we find in their prayer. And that's, and that's going to kind of govern my two points. My two points are that they, they trusted in a God who oversaw all things, who was in charge, who was overseeing things, and then they trusted in a God who knew their needs and wanted to meet them. So a God who oversees, a God who knows their needs, that's kind of where we're going to go, and we're going to um, dive right now into our passage. So if you would, um, please stand with me out of reverence to God's Word, if you're willing and able, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through um, 31. Here now the reading of God's Word. When they were released, this is, that's Peter and John. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why to the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. I've been on a little bit of a 20th century history kick as I've brought this into my sermons multiple times, so you guys might actually know this. Um, well, one of the fascinating things that when you're kind of when you're learning about history is that you start to learn the names of people that you didn't know, but have had tremendous impact on your life and on, sh- on history, on all of history. One of these people is a man by the name of Leo Szilard. He's a, a Jewish Hungarian scientist. Um, and he, he kind of escaped um, Europe as the threat of Nazism was growing, and he, he escaped, and he ended up in America. And 
Leo Szilard was the man who first conceived of the nuclear chain reaction that would then result in the atomic bomb. And he actually created the experiments that actually resulted in the bomb itself. Right? He was intimately involved from the very beginning. It was his brain that this came out of. And, um, and so as, he, as often happens when humans kind of unknowingly become the inventors of massive destruction. This happens in, in, in history multiple times. But he, he began to kind of have this existential crisis about what did I do? What did I create? I have to stop this thing, as he sees it unfolding kind of throughout the, the, the years of World War II. But the problem is, is that he had completely lost all control. He had lost all power to make any decisions about these experiments. As the U.S. government had kind of taken things over, he had become a pawn, kind of a slave to bureaucracy, and he couldn't do anything about it, right? The, the train was moving, and he could not stop it. So what he decided to do is he decided to go up the hierarchy of command, and he decided to go to the very, very top. He said, the, the one person that I think could actually stop this is FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president of the United States of America. This guy can cut through the bureaucracy and he can stop this horror that we're going to release on the world if we continue down this road. Now, what he does is he writes a letter and tragically, well, it never reaches the desk of FDR because he dies. And the bomb, of course, you know, whatever we think about the bomb, it certainly unleashed on earth immense destructive power. And, um, and it, he created the mechanism by which humanity had the power to wipe itself out, right? He never got to the top. He never got, to, got far enough up the chain of command to stop this thing. But that's what he was trying to do. Now, what we see happening in our passage today is something similar, um, but maybe even on a bigger scale in this sense. The, 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 the lives of these apostles had gotten a little bit out of their control, Right? They had been arrested. They were, they were facing persecution. They were being told by, by kind of the establishment, like, you must stop what you're doing. Otherwise, there will be massive consequences. They, they had gotten out of their control. And so what do they do? Well, they go up the chain of command. But they go a whole lot higher than the president. Right? They go a whole lot higher. They go to God himself, right? the top of the ladder. They got the, the God who deals with no bureaucracy at all. Right? He is in control. And this is what they say. You see how they address God in verse 24? They say, sovereign Lord. The word sovereign, that's not something that we use a lot in our, um, in our language today. But it basically means supreme ruler. So they're saying supreme ruler of all things. It's not just that God's in control of the church, right, of us here, like we have to obey God. You know? No, it's not just that God's in control of a country like the president maybe is. It's that God is in control of all things. He's in control of the universe. He is in charge of everything. So, and, and they actually tease it out a little bit. Look at the rest of verse 24. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. Right? He's the, they're saying, God, you're the creator of everything. Everything that we see, you made it. And guess what? You get to do what you want with the things that you made. God's overseeing 
all of creation, right? This is my, the God who oversees. He's overseeing creation. That's my first point. But that's not all. Look at verse 28. So they say that, God, you did these things to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What is that? What are they talking about? That's what they're saying. They're saying that the outworking of history also falls under the sovereignty of God. You see, God doesn't just oversee creation. He oversees the outworking of the story of what happens to that creation. He oversees not just creation, but history itself. You know what that means? It means that he's overseeing even the persecution that they face. He's overseeing the, the, the oper- the every, every instance that they have to, to share the gospel again in the midst of this, the threats that they're facing. He, he, it, and what does it mean for us today? It means that he's overseeing COVID. He knows exactly what's going on. It means that he's overseeing what happens on November 4th. Is it 4th or 3rd? Whatever. In November, it's, it means that he's overseeing what's happening in your family. He knows. And he's overseeing it all. I don't know if you've seen, um, they believe God to be a God who oversaw everything. He was the sovereign over their lives and over what happened to them. I don't, so, um, I don't know if you guys have seen The Social Dilemma yet on Netflix. You you need to watch this documentary. Um, it's, it's, It's about how social media companies can like, kind of manage and manipulate us and our preferences in a really, like, to sell us things. It's quite dark and incredibly unsettling. And, 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 and if you watch it or if you've already seen it, you're not going to like it. And that, you know why? Because you don't, like, we don't like the idea that there's something that is not us that has some sort of oversight over us. Right? It's like deeply uncomfortable. I will never have an Amazon Echo in my house. Like I'm a little bit more extreme than most people. Do you know why? Because Amazon, I, I'm just terrified of Amazon having some sort of oversight, like listening to me. No, I, like, I, can't, I can't do it. I don't want that. I'm maybe an extreme case. But what this passage says is that God is overseeing all things, including you, in the privacy of your home. He's in control, and that is uncomfortable, right? If we took it on maybe a more, like, uh, philosophical or metaphysical level, I think people, like, they, they just don't like this idea that something is not, that's not them, is in control. I was, um, maybe one of the more dramatic examples of this or the more um, extreme examples of this distaste for control that I've seen um, is a quote that I recently saw from this guy named um, Naval Ravikant, he's a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and for whatever reason, he's become like the king of these one-liners on Twitter, then kind of become a, a sage for tech people, okay? They, they listen to him, he's, they, he teaches them how to live the best life. Um, and this is what he said on, on a, um, something I saw him say, to believe that there is purpose in life, okay? To believe that there is purpose in life is to not be free. Okay, do you hear what he's saying? 
He's saying to believe that there is something, to believe that there is anything overarching, even purpose, is to be a slave. Right? And he's saying you've got to throw it off. Throw it off. Throw off all limits, all principles, all purposes. Throw it off, and you can be free. Okay? You can live the good life. But the question is, of course, is that even possible? Is that even possible? Is it possible to live, um, to not serve anything, for nothing to be in control of you? Is that genuinely possible? Of course, um, we love to think that it is, but um, this um, novelist named David Foster Wallace, and we've, you've met, probably heard his name before um, up here. He's, this is a really interesting, he gave a really interesting commen- commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005. Um, this guy's not a Christian. He's not interested in Christianity um, at all. But this is what he said. He said, um, he's giving kind of advice to these, these um, seniors who have just graduated, and he says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. You will worship something. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Like, worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when, the time, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This is what he says. It's really interesting. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil, not, it's not that they're evil or sinful, although you know, maybe I'll disagree with that, but it's that they're unconscious. It's our default setting. This is what he's saying. He's saying, you will serve somebody. You will serve something. Something will be in charge of your life. There is something that will be in charge of the decisions that you make. But that something had better be able to bear the weight of your life and your expectations. You know, these Christians, they start their prayer saying, God, it's you that are in control. It's you that we serve. You're overseeing everything that happens. And, 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 be, and because they believe him to be in control, right, they trust him to bear the weight of their hopes, their dreams, even their sufferings. They trust that he can bear the weight of those things in a way that money, beauty, intellect, things cannot. You know, maybe one of the reasons we struggle to pray is that we don't really believe that it will work. You know, we, uh, why would we pray? You know, why would we pray if God is not in control? Why would we pray if God can do nothing, if he's not overseeing all things? You know, the, the foundation of a good prayer life is an absolute trust that God is sovereign, that he's overseeing everything, right? That God has the power to oversee our lives and thus to answer our prayers, the God who oversees. Now, our second point is the God who knows our needs. They, they trust in a God who they believed knew their needs. 
Now, a historical name going back 20th century history, a historical name that you probably know, I hope so, is Joseph Stalin. Um, Joseph Stalin was the leader of the Soviet Union before, during, and after World War II, and he was just was a horrible, brutal dictator. And he killed tens of millions of his own countrymen. And it's really interesting. They say that when he died, um, he had kind of gone into his room, um, and his servants hadn't heard anything from him in about a day, to the point that they were, like, they, they kept putting it off and putting it off because they were too afraid to go in his room. Okay? And they, they, they couldn't do they. And so they just kept not hearing anything, hearing anything. And finally, somebody works up the courage to open the door and look in, and he's laying there on the ground, just kind of in a, you know, he's dead. Or at least they assume so. The doctor who came in to see if he was dead couldn't check his pulse because he was trembling so badly. Right? This is, right, Joseph Stalin had absolute power. He was the supreme ruler of Russia. And it was horrifying. It was terrifying. So, so it's not enough that God is, the, is sovereign. He also has to be trustworthy. He has to be good. He has to actually care about us and our needs. But that's exactly what God is. You know, it's interesting, something um, about this passage that we're probably likely to miss just because of our cultural context do you see in verse 29 how they refer to themselves as God's servants? Now, in the ancient world, servants did not speak to their masters. That, was, that line of communication was not open, right? But in verse 25, they say, God, when you spoke to us through David, right? They, God speaks to them. And of course, prayer itself, like this whole passage, is them speaking back to God, right? They talk. They have, a, they have a talking relationship. They have this, it's unheard of in the ancient world. This is a different kind of sovereign. This is a, a God who is attentive to them. He listens to them. He talks to them. They know him. He knows them. And he knows what they need. He knows what they care about and they trust him. And how do I know that they trust him? Well, if we were to continue in this prayer in verses um, 29 and 30, it's really interesting what, what they pray for. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What happens when you believe that God oversees all things and yet knows your needs and cares about them. What happens? Well, first, you'll see that they don't ask God for security. It's really interesting, right? They've just been arrested and told that they will be arrested again. But they don't ask for protection. What's up with that? Why not? They, they in fact, say, instead say, Look upon their threats, as if to say, God, we just want to, you to know, like have a sense of what's going on here. Like just look at, you know, look upon the situation, and then you, you, we will trust you to do what is right with this situation that you see. 
They don't demand God act in a certain way. And then they say, grant your, to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They're saying, Lord, we know that you are overseeing all of this, and we know that you know what we need, and so we can trust you. And so what we ask is that, not that you would fix this situation, but that we would be able to be a part of what you are doing, and that we wouldn't be afraid as we do that. Give us boldness, they say. You know, this brings up one of the things that I think makes it difficult for us to pray. I think that we are, and certainly in my own life, we're a little bit uneasy with the reality that might be opened up to us if we pray. You know, maybe that's one of the reasons we spend our mornings skimming our feeds instead of praying. What if God actually answers our prayers? What if he actually teaches us to rely on him? Like that would be a little, feel a little bit out of control, wouldn't it? Like we wouldn't have as much of a white knuckle grip on our lives. What if he, what if that actually happens? Or, you know, what if he starts to root out the sins that we, you know, we know we don't, we don't like, but we kind of like, you know, the, the, um, the church father, St. Augustine, before he became a Christian, he would pray, um, God, make me chaste, but not yet, right? He's not ready. He's like, uh, I kind of want you to take that away. Not really. What if God starts to open doors that you're not ready to walk through? Like, what if, what if, the, what if the reason we don't pray is because we're afraid of what God, that God will actually answer our prayers? They're not afraid. They're saying, God, Give, and in fact, they're saying, God, don't let us be afraid as we step into whatever you want from us. We know, you, we know that you're overseeing all things. We know that we can trust you. We know that you know what we need, and we trust you. Well, secondly, it's interesting that they don't um, ask God to get revenge for them. It's really interesting. They, they say, God, allow uh, like these, these signs and, and miracles to continue to pour out, but w- but they don't ask for miracles of revenge, like, hey, help us to, like, get them back or whatever. No, they ask that they would continue, be able to, that, they, that God would allow them to continue to be merciful. It's really interesting. Allow us to continue to heal others, right? What's going on there? They don't need to protect their reputation. They don't need to get theirs. They don't need, they, in fact, um, they, in fact, are, this is one of the problems with kind of that libertarian sense of freedom is that it's incredibly self-centered. It's always self-centered. The only thing that matters is me and my, what I want, right? But what kind of freedom, what would you need to be, like, free to be others-centered? Like, what, what, what if freedom is actually the freedom to care about other people more than yourself? And that's exactly what you see going on here. You, like, they serve a God who they can trust, who's overseeing all of creation and their whole lives, and who knows what they need, and thus they are able to, instead of protecting their own reputation, instead of protecting their own back, they're able to instead live freely in service to other people and caring for others. You know, money doesn't give us that kind of freedom. No. 
The God who rules the universe has chosen to take your best interests at heart. That is what's going on here. You don't have to shake your fist at God and demand a better life. You can trust Him. And that's how He wants us to come to Him in prayer. And I know the silence of prayer is, like it's, frankly, it's kind of scary sometimes. It's, it's kind of scary to be in the silence of our own thoughts and to be before the Lord, but you don't have to distract yourself with ESPN. You don't have to. Why? Because God is, cares about you, and He's attentive to your needs. He cares, and His posture towards you is one of love and one of, of, of care, and one of um, knowing who you are, where you are, what you need. And that is how they're coming to God. And that's what we see, that's the heart that we see in their prayers. God actually cares. He actually can answer your prayers. And you can trust Him. Even when it feels uncomfortable. You know, um, what's really interesting is that the, um, the example that they use to remind themselves of who God is is the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Um, as if to say, if God is not in control, salvation is actually not possible. Like, it'd be almost like God just sending Jesus to earth and saying, like, all right, Jesus, I hope this works. You know, we'll see. Um, just try and make the Pharisees mad enough that they kill you. No, 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 no. Christians believe, we have always believed that our redemption was meticulously planned and expertly executed at every step of the way. There were no accidents. Jesus came to earth knowing full well that this plan would come to fruition, that he would die. As soon as he was born, there was a countdown clock to his death, and he knew it. He knew, and he did it anyways. He came to earth to die on the cross in our place. He did what we deserved. He died on the cross when we deserved it. Planned, executed. Why? Because God knew what we needed and he knew that we needed him, and Jesus Christ was the only way to make that possible. You see, an impotent God cannot save you, but a sovereign Lord can, sovereign Lord who cares about your needs and who longs and will do anything to meet them. You know, their reflection on the crucifixion actually gave them the tools to pray and to pray well. It told them that God, who was in control of all things, cared about them enough to even die on the cross for their sins, to do anything that they needed to, to, um, to bring them back into relationship with him. And similarly today, it's our reflection on the crucifixion. It's our, our working the truths of the gospel down deeper and deeper into our hearts that will give us the, 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 um, the, the strength and, and the means to pray and to fix our weak and fragile and ugly prayer lives. Those are the truths that we need to cling to as we come to the Lord. And 